Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This podcast episode was recorded on Friday, September 16th. And that same day, a short highlight reel containing the most actionable sequences of the podcast was released to premium subscribers. In fact, this contained a section that has been cut from this episode you were about to hear because it was so timely, namely a preview of the Fed interest rate decision on Wednesday, September 21st. So premium subscribers got that last Friday, along with a couple of other insights that are in today's podcast episode. And they got all this without ads or interruptions. It was a short broadcast that they got about seven minutes or so, containing just the most actionable insights, like I said. This is one of just a number of benefits that are made available to premium subscribers. You also get the daily contrarian briefing and podcast every market day morning, and that runs down a whole list of the upcoming data releases and other items such as earnings that are likely to move markets in the day ahead. And a bunch of other stuff too. Of course, you get the regular podcast episode without ads or any of these annoying announcements or anything like that, no interruptions. So it makes sense to sign up and you can do so at the website mentioned at the top or you can visit our Substack, which is contrarianpod.substack.com. The show notes have these links. Check it out and subscribe, and I'll see you there. Now on to today's podcast. Axel Merck of Merck Investments, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor podcast today. I'm very thrilled and honored to have you on the show. And we are here to talk about a bunch of things. And what I wanted to kick off with is this idea of stagflation. The idea is nothing new. The fact that people are talking about it is nothing new. But your view is that the stagflation that we may get, are going to get potentially, is going to last a decade or more, not just a couple of years, like I guess it did in the 70s. So please tell me about that. Well, sure. Great, great to be on your program. And uh, the, the, the great inflation actually is defined, I believe, from the late 60s until the early 80s. Um, a big oh, chunk it? of that was uh, stagflationary. And many people think about a stagflationary shock very properly, right? Um, COVID is a supply shock, stagflationary shock, um, war in Ukraine, supply shock. The reason why these shocks don't just fizzle out the moment the economy opens up again is because of the human factor. The 
when you're faced with a supply shock, the politically attractive thing is economically counterproductive. And so everybody knows that, oh, we have supply shortages, everybody's locked up, everybody needs help. So we write them a check, right? And so guess what? Printing money does not fix the supply issues. Um, Europeans are just discussing an excess profit take, a windfall tax on, on energy companies. Well, guess what? That discourages supply, mm. right? And, and so any which way you turn, from a, and, and, and think about it from a politician's point of view, right? Um, it says, we don't have enough supply. Well, let's, how about we make it more difficult, right, to, to, to work? Um, or this or that, right? Um, to 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 consume goods. Um, politically, it is just the attractive thing to do is the counterproductive thing economically. And and Bernanke, the the former Fed chair, he talked about um, how when you're faced with high inflation, you don't just go back down to low inflation. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is that there are ripple effects. Um, high inflation has consequences. You you enter an era of instability, and uh, Bernanke argues that we are much, so much smarter now than in the 1970s. But we're still human, and uh, we're also human at the Fed. And I trust we'll talk plenty about the Fed here. Yeah. Um, as you may be aware, we we launched a stagflation ETF in May, um, not because it's, we think it's a three month product, but because we think that there are going to be many years of that sort of thing, and that creates numerous challenges for investors. Okay, so stagflation is the combination of inflation and low growth. We have the inflation piece. The Fed, however, is raising rates, and you don't think that's going to do anything? You don't think they're going to be effective in bringing down inflation? Well, well, first of all, when you raise interest rates, you're throttling growth. Again, mm -hmm. you're not increasing supply, which is at the core of the issue. Now, Historically, and obviously, when you throttle supply, it's an indirect way also of reducing inflationary pressures. Uh, the question is, how much will they achieve? And they give us all this tough talk that they'll do it. I'd like to remind people that even Volcker, who was very successful in killing inflation, he got inflation down to about 4%, and it took several years for inflation to get down to 2%. So it's certainly not an easy task. We have so much more leverage in the economy. and uh, what the Fed wants to do, of course, yes, they want to have the soft landing. They want to hike rates gradually and steadily and throttle things down. The problem with that is that's not how life works. Mm. Right? When, you, when you push the brakes enough, at some point, some wheels are going to come falling off. Mm. And ultimately, financial stability is what the Fed cares about more so than anything else. Um, and so let the high yield spreads blow out completely. Um, have some sort of shock in the market. Um, at that stage, there's only one way that the Fed can react and come to the rescue is with a fire hose. Hmm. Um, and I'll come back to that. You mentioned the dollar earlier. When we talk about the dollar, I come back to that as well. Hmm. But um, but the, it, it's just that, yes, in a textbook environment, they raise rates, economy slows down, we got 2%. Um, real life is not like the textbook. And hmm. uh, that's that's big, one of the big, big challenges that the Fed has. Yeah, no question. Couldn't you argue, though, that the Fed back in Volcker's day was faced with much more persistent inflation, you know, dating to the 60s, as you said, and, and nowadays this was really just a one year thing or two years or so. And therefore, that this was just a little inflation shock brought on by COVID 
and that it should therefore make the Fed's job easier? Well, we got high inflation. Once you have high inflation, it's an unstable dynamic that you have unleashed. Now, there could be things that you could do. Um, for example, you have a labor shortage. Well, open the floodgates of immigration. Legal or illegal, doesn't really matter from an economic point of view. Um, that reduces the labor shortage. The Germans, by the way, they got all the Ukrainians coming in. The unemployment rate went up um, because they got more people in the labor force. They're trying to allow them to, to, to participate. That's a choice. Politically, I hear it's a bit dicey, right? Mm. Um, you could um, give a gazillion permits to start drilling um, for oil and other things. I don't hear that happening. But politically, the, the, the things to do to ease supply shocks are just politically very, very difficult to do. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so, um, yeah, the, the, the thing you're pointing out, that it's not like the 70s, that is, of course, correct. And let me just... Uh, without getting too technical, when, when you look at the market, there are, of course, longer-term inflation expectations, and they have come down of late. Um, that said, nobody, you don't, I don't, the market, the Fed, nobody knows what inflation will be 10 years from now. And so when you look at these longer-term inflation expectations, they are really a reflection of the confidence in the Fed. And so in that sense, you are correct that the Fed has an easier job than they had in the 70s because those long-term inflation expectations are reasonably well anchored. But that doesn't mean they won't do anything stupid. Mm -hmm. right? The Fed has rarely ever been accused of worrying too much about the next problem. They're always worried about the current problem that we have. And Mervyn King, the, the former head of the um, Bank of England, I think said it properly, it would be good if central banks pursued policies that help anchor inflation expectations rather than pursuing policies that rely on the fact that the market trusts the Fed and then see what they get away with. Mm. And the Fed has done too much of that, in my view. We don't have what I would call intellectual leadership at the Fed, right? The, the leadership we got is a 10-minute talk that, that there will be pain in the markets. Well, that, that's Eight a good, minutes, a good yeah. gimmick, right? That's a good gimmick, and it got the message across. But we... We don't have, we still have the official framework of this idiotic, idiotic is a CFA level four term, backward looking inflation framework to manage forward inflation. We've been told that um, forward guidance is dead. And what do we get? Forward guidance from all the Fed presidents and even from Powell, right? They, they, that makes it very difficult. And, and the Fed is lucky that, and, and, and Krugman, by the way, he points out, hey, we, we don't need to raise rates as much because look at um, inflation expectations are still anchored. Well, if the Fed were to wait until inflation expectations are not anchored, yes, we would have a much, much bigger challenge in our hand than we have right now. So in that sense, it's easier, but uh, don't kid yourself. They don't have an easy task. So how do you see this playing out with the Fed raising rates now? The growth I mean, other than maybe housing and mortgages, hasn't really come down. I mean, you mentioned employment. I mean, we're basically at full employment here in the U.S., just about as close as we're going to get, probably. And the consumer is out in force. I mean, notwithstanding what FedEx said yesterday. So, but how, how do you play? How do you see this playing out? How long before they the consumer get, gets affected by these higher rates and the economy starts to roll over? Well, I, I think your question implies some linearity. And yeah. I think that's what we need to throw out of the window. Okay. We're going to have an unstable dynamic unleash. Mm. Um, one of the things you see in the markets is that 
many people don't take strong positions. Uh, people are not as levered as they have been. And that's because smart people, reasonable people don't know. Mm. We don't know how exactly this is going to play out. This can go any which way. I look at things from a risk perspective and what risks I can take. And uh, I'm taking much less risk than I used to and, and, and so many others because this can go any which way. I mean, the Fed could be lucky that yes, things will fizzle out, we'll live happily ever after. I cannot take that as my baseline. Uh, to me, that's that's too dangerous. Mm. Um, and so we have to be aware that once you have high inflation, history shows, because it could be that for several months at some point, inflation is going to come down. Well, if you declare victory, guess what? The next month you're going to get whacked again, right? And, and so that's the sort of challenge that you have. And that's precisely why you need intellectual leadership. Larry Summers has pointed out, we only really get out of this once you have a new framework, and since the current folks at the Fed and other central banks, by the way, as well, the only thing they have done is blame the model and saying, well, it was a tough environment, forgive us. If we don't have a change in leadership, either intellectually, or since that's not coming in person, we cannot really move forward, right? Um, that's why it took a Volcker to come in, to, to break the mindset and have a new philosophy. There's too much groupthink at the Fed and it's been fostered as part of that institution. And so it's very, very difficult for me to, to assume that this is going to work out just fine. Hmm. That seems to imply that Jay Powell is not going to be there much longer. Well, that's my opinion, that he that, that it is time to have him move on. But I don't really see him motivated to, to, to take my advice, right? <laughs> well, he's see. not, but Biden can, can replace him. Well, yes, but... Um, Biden just uh, says, hey, inflation is the Fed's problem. Let, let him deal with it. And uh, for that, he is not involved enough. And by the way, by, um, Powell and, uh, and Yellen, well, Yellen is going to leave probably at the end of the year. But um, I, 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 yeah, who knows? I, he doesn't strike me as a guy that makes a tough decision like that, right? Especially it was he and the Democrats that scolded Trump, rightfully, by the way, for interfering too much with the Fed. Um, and so Biden replacing a Fed chair, his advisors are going to tell him no. So I, I don't think that's going to happen. But I mean, it looks a little like the, the, the politicians have been kind of setting things up a little bit. Some of the comments that you look at to have make, make Powell the fall guy for inflation if it persists and then maybe move to replace him as a political move. Who knows, maybe after the midterms well it's, it's been it's it's i mean in history you always love to blame the fed for your own yeah. problems right and you like to have the fed solve all your problems um and you, you pile on more responsibilities i mean the fed should be doing less much less rather than more um and and so it you, you i'm just saying that i don't see it in 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 Biden's cards to, to take that initiative um, because it would be seen as interference and so forth so they, they let him run so un, unless powell um, yields himself. I don't see that happening. And then, by the way, I've talked with talked with former Fed officials, and they they tend to share that that perspective. Oh, okay. Well, you know better than me then. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. Um, you mentioned before that you're more risk averse than you were maybe a couple of years ago or so. So, so talk to me about that. Why isn't the bottom end? Well, historically, markets bottom about two-thirds of a recession. And uh, we've had this political argument of whether we're in a recession or not. Um, just on that note, 
keep in mind that the GDP numbers are released with the third month really being a guessing game. We don't really have those numbers. Also in the US, it's a committee that decides rather than just two negative GDP growth. And uh, with the exception of GDP growth, all the other indicators that they watch were positive. So it's not officially a recession. Uh, and if you look at past recession, and independent of whether it feels like a recession or not, but if you look at how the risk markets, the S&P has performed versus the officially classified recessions, the, the, the bottom, not always, but tends to be towards uh, two thirds through the recession. And if I look forward to where we are in the economic cycle, some things are good, some things are falling off a cliff. Uh, we will get to a recession, but at this stage, I don't think the official recession has started yet. And I certainly don't think we're two thirds through this. Mm. Um, we don't even know yet where the light of the tunnel is, right? Usually uh, we, we bottom when there's a sense of the, the Fed pivoting for one reason or the other. And we're not there um, by any stretch of the imagination. Hmm. When do you see, think the Fed can pivot? Well, um, when the wheels fall off, yeah. then the Fed will pivot. Yeah. And we don't know when that happens. That can happen, of course, in, on short notice. But the, uh, the thing to watch for is the, uh, one, of the, one of the many things we can watch for is the, the foreign exchange lines um, that the Federal Reserve gives. When, Federal, when the Federal Reserve comes to the rescue of other central banks, that is, that is a sign that enough is enough. We need to make sure that this world is functioning. And uh, you mentioned the reduction that we might talk about the dollar. That may be the big secular change in the dollar that we finally have have come to an end of the dollar squeeze and the fed is providing the liquidity for for an unleashing of uh, of a reflationary environment right so that to me is is an obvious point to watch for uh, might be others but that that will be the most obvious pivot point yeah talk me through that so first of all where is this data available where they they bail out they lent other central banks? um they they publish on uh, they, the, the the data balance sheet of the federal reserve shows the the swap lines that they have extended to foreign central banks and uh, currently they're near zero um the during the financial crisis they were ramped up during the the covid crisis they they flared up and so they happen during during peaks in crises right foreign central banks have to deposit collateral with the US and during COVID, they extended that to just about any country rather than just a select few. Um, politically, very controversial. Um, yeah. And uh, but but from a from a market signaling point of view, it means the Fed means business, right? Um, they gonna help out. Um, so it's more than a little QE or this or that. But that means that there is serious stress in the global banking system. And uh, that's ultimately what they're in business for. Inflation is all good and fine, but you don't want the global financial system to implode. And we know the tools that they use and those swap lines is, is a key to that. And so they would use that to weaken the dollar because the, the strong dollar- Well, they, they would do that to provide liquidity to the system, right? Okay. The side effect of that is, and, and, and the context to the dollar to, to just take a step back, during an economic expansion, foreigners borrow US dollars to invest. And, uh, and so it's the US dollar is like a huge carry currency in that sense. Um, and that means it's really when, when you borrow in dollars as a foreigner, it's a short position on the dollar because you short the dollar to get your currency. And then when you're in a crisis, there's a short squeeze. You reduce your leverage and it happens to individuals, it happens to countries, 
which means they have to buy back the dollars. And that's why you have this dollar go up in the crisis. And that goes until the policymakers say enough is enough. Now, this could be interesting because we might get a little noise in this. Um, the, the Bank of Japan has indicated they might interfere in the markets um, and whatnot, um, and depends on what scale they do it. Um, my guess is it's going to be as much of a disaster as last time they, they did it, which is then just an opportunity to sell the yen again. Um, mm. They just put it on sale, so to speak, or on, mm. on buy briefly, um, and, and you can double down. But if, if, it's a, if it's induced by a real crisis, you could see a more proactive effort. And to me, that would be a signal that the mindset of the, of the Fed has changed. Interesting. And we're starting to get there, you think? Well, it's like any crisis, right? I mean, it's going to whack you at some point. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's, it's rare that they tell you next week on Tuesday, the crisis is going to be there. Um, mm. But at the same time, when you have markets tumble a thousand points a day, mm. um, you suddenly have that, that precondition. Now, one mm. reason why this may last late, come later is, as I mentioned earlier, people are less leveraged than they have been because everybody knows this is kind of difficult, a mm. difficult environment. And so um, on the margin call side, it's going to be potentially less severe. And the, but you only need failure of some institution somewhere with ripple effects, right? You, mm -hmm. you, you never quite know where the broken link is. And that's why it's so difficult to say when that's going to happen. But what I do know is that as the Federal Reserve raises rates, the odds of these things happening steadily increase, disproportionately yeah. so. And then, by the way, that is a key reason why forward guidance is so, so stupid, because you want to have that flexibility and not have egg on your face that you say, hey, I'm going to raise 75 basis points, and then you you have some major crisis, and they, they have to do a U-turn two days later. Mm. Yeah. Really interesting. All right, Axel Merck, very interesting conversation. I want to take a short break and come right back and ask you some more about your background, about markets, about asset allocation, and some other things. But let's first take a short break. If you are a premium subscriber, you will not get the break. Don't go anywhere. Don't touch the dial. We'll be right back. In fact, we already are. And to become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website dot com will do the trick and we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices same benefits same details contrarianpod.substack.com so if you already have a Substack account and use it or have the app and use that that's probably the best way to go so contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod 
www.substack.com. Whole bunch of benefits, including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the Daily Contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out, contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Axel Merck here on the Contrarian Investor Podcast. Axel, this is the segment of the show where we ask our guests a little bit more about themselves personally and professionally, how they came to investing in the first place, and how they came to uh, the, yeah their professional career. So take it away. Uh, yeah, I'd be curious to hear from you about that. All right, you go with that far. Well, well, as far as I, you want. I, <laughs> I grew up in a household where um, uh, the stock market was a discussion on the dinner table. My my dad was in the business. My dad on in October '87 hmm. um, wanted to pop some champagne because he was uh, severely short the market. Um, the big ones, as they called them at the time. You talk about your winners, right? In the in the subsequent days, you lose them some money. But I picked up the phone in October 87 crash. I was a teenager. Um, the one client called him who had told him he must not hedge his portfolio. Um, and uh, I was had the pleasure of taking that phone call. Um, I later in college, I took on my first clients. I later dropped out of a PhD program to, to start Merck Investments. I started it back in Europe. I took it to the U.S. in 2001, became SEC registered in, in October 2001. And at the time, we were managing several small strategies and uh, the, the increased regulatory overhead that came in at the time. Instead of merging with another investment advisor, as many people did, we decided we'll do the other direction. We go to public products. Um, public products, for, as you might relate to, are high-cost um, fixed income, uh, fixed fixed cost products. When if you scale them enough, then they're attractive. And so we launched our first mutual fund in uh, 2005. At some point, we had four mutual funds. These days, we manage about a billion dollars, um, most of which in gold. Uh, we have a physical gold product, gold mining. We have a closed end mining fund. Uh, I mentioned stagflation. We have a uh, stagflation ETF that we launched in May. Um, we, we have a mutual fund on focused on currencies, um, and then we do a bunch of little things on the side in addition to that. But uh, in 2005, we became a business, so to speak, and uh, we have a, a small but fabulous team. And whenever we try to go away from, from the precious metals market, uh, we're drawn back into it. One of the mm. mutual funds we had several years ago, um, investing in the S&P 500 with a currency overlay, amazing product, but nobody bought it. <laughs> and so we we uh, stick to our knitting, but part of that, because we come from the currency world and the precious metals world, we focus a lot on the Fed, on the ECB, um, and and monetary conditions in general. And so, and on that note, we do a lot of both quantitative and qualitative work. So we have some some amazing quant and qualitative skills, I, I would think, and uh, I'm trying to manage that myself. By the way. I have a master's in computer science. I never, um, I have an undergrad degree also in business economics. I never 
completed my my PhD, and uh, I never really worked for anybody else. I had some summer jobs, and for better or worse, um, I started as a small business. I still think we are a startup. My wife growls when I say that, uh, but it's <laughs> but uh, but for better or worse, I have not worked for for any of the big banks. Wow, that's interesting. That's uh, pretty unique. Interesting. So the stagflation fund, what kind of stuff does it invest in? And so when, when we looked at this uh, a good year ago, we figured, well, what do we do? Because if, if you're in a stagflation environment, ideally you want to invest in the CPI, the consumer price index, because that's yeah. the only thing that kind of goes up. Um, and then you can't invest in the CPI. I mean, you can do some inflation swaps if you're a sophisticated investor and whatnot, but, but it's kind of difficult. Um, and, uh, and the other thing that did well in the 70s were certain commodities, oil, gold, real estate. And so what we did then some quantitative analysis, what sort of investments go up, because we're obviously not in the 70s, it's not exactly the same economy, uh, what sort of investments go up when inflation or inflation expectations come up. And we came up uh, with an ETF that's a fairly straightforward ETF that invests in TIPS, inflation-protected mm -hmm. securities, gold, oil, and real estate, and we have a core investment position in TIPS and then use a trend following methodology for the commodities. And the reason we use a trend following methodology because that had worked quite well in the 70s. So the idea is you kind of, the, the TIPS core position give you the closest you can get to investing in, in the CPI and then you have a kicker. And uh, our analysis shows it might do well in a normal environment and particularly well in the stagflation environment. Hmm. Um, we've had some people tell us, why the hell do you have such a huge tips position and why don't you invest more in gold? Well, we like gold, um, but part of that is also the, the risk profile that you wanna contain. Um, we see this as a bond substitute more than anything else. And so you wanna tone on the risk profile. The other thing is, and we're gonna publish a, a paper on this in the near future, most people don't understand tips well. When you buy tips, you don't buy, what you buy is, what you lock in is real interest rates. Right. So when you buy a tip today, you're locking in the real return over the next several years. Today, it's positive by 1%. Not long ago, it was negative by 1%. And so uh, part of, tips haven't performed well in recent months as real interest rates have gone up. And so investors need to ask themselves, how high can go real interest rates go? Ten-year real interest rates um, as priced into the markets. Is this a good buying opportunity? And, and tips certainly have been hit hard. But in any case, the the, the Merck Stagflation ETF, and if I can give a pitch, the the ticker yeah, STGF. Um, STGF is the ticker. Um, is kind of a one-click way for investors to do it, and and so it's just part of our way. One of the things you ask kind of my background, we. We're trying to find ways, well, what can we do to deal with this environment? And then we're trying to find solutions and offer them to the market. And, and of course, one way our subscribers and our Twitter followers and this and that can support us is by looking at our products. Sure, sure. Cool. Um, so what's your outlook on gold? Because gold has uh, kind of taken a beating the last couple of months. And um, if you're long inflation, that might not be a terrible idea. Well, Gold has, to, to, to understand where gold might be heading to, I think it's good to understand what sort of investors buy gold. And the way I look at it is the folks are concerned about the dollar and purchasing power of the dollar, the diversifier, 
the folks who believe or know that gold over the long run has a low correlation, and then the speculators. They love mm -hmm. to jump on a on a trend. Um, the speculators have gone to the meme stocks and are currently being hmm. ostracized by the Fed. They have been on the sidelines. If there's a big trend in gold, up or down, they'll come back, but they prefer digital assets and whatnot. The diversifier has always been there, uh, and we have seen more attention by, by investors choosing diversification, um, and so that core position is there. And then the purchasing power one, well, it's a question of real rates in some ways, and not so much about short-term ones. Now, many people are saying, oh, the inflation today is the one that matters. Well, yeah, but markets are forward-looking, and, uh, and there it doesn't matter where six, seven, 10-year real rates are, and they have been moving higher. And in that sense, it's actually been, been um, very encouraging that gold hasn't sold off more than it might have given, given the, the sort of historic correlations. But these correlations are not stable. They do break down. And so, again, I think your outlook on gold depends on where real interest rates will be and if how far the Fed can take those up. And it is possible that the Fed will take them up further. But the question is, how far? And again, when will the wheels fall off? Mm. And there it goes back to the earlier question. Well, give me a timing, right? Mm. I don't know the timing. You don't know the timing. When will the wheels fall off? And so historically, it's been more prudent to buy things before the something hits the fan than afterwards. And so that's the, that's the sort of context in which I see it. And more importantly, this is the context in which we see investors see it. If I look at the... ETF flows, um, they have been slightly negative in, in recent weeks. In our own ETF, it's been mixed. Some of it has been positive, and we've certainly been gaining market share. There are some little differentiating features. Maybe that's, uh, that's presumably the reason. But we do, see, we do see buyers. We see them being reluctant, um, and we think they'll come back more in earnest if and when we see more, more stress in the market. Hmm. Interesting. So you don't have any idea how, to, I mean, nobody does, of course, but any, any kind of speculation on how, how high the Fed might go, how far past 4%? Well, uh, the market has priced in that they'll peak out in the springtime. Um, and uh, they are, if I look at my fancy Bloomberg, they'll peak out at 4.4%. Very precise based on Bloomberg. Now, keep in mind, when you look at market expectations, like a year and a half out, the market isn't stupid. The market has to price in the risk of a shock happening. And so the market will always say at some point, a shock is going to hit us and think about everything that could possibly go wrong and assign them probabilities. Now, if you're a statistician, say whether these things are dependent or independent, but the further you go out, the higher the probability that something is going to happen that forces the Fed's hands to to go down. So if nothing bad happens, maybe the Fed is going to go higher. Mm. Um, the odds of that happening, I don't think are very high, but that quote unquote risk is there. And also the market gold, by the way, historically performs well late in the economic cycle. And the mm. reason gold performs well late in the economic cycle is because there's an anticipation that at some point the Fed will ease again. Now, as we all know, the Fed has all but promised to be higher for longer which means that moment might come a little later with the caveat that if the shit hits the fan, it will come earlier anyway. 
Yeah. So I've been very yeah. precise in answering your question. <laughs> no, yeah, no, no, no. But you also have the fact that, you know, it, what do you make of the argument that if inflation doesn't go down, the Fed can't cut rates or can't even shift? Maybe they could shift to neutral. But I mean, if there's a, like, I mean, if stocks get dumped by, I don't know, 10%, the, and people think the Fed's going to come yeah. to the rescue. Okay, maybe if inflation is down, but if inflation is still they, six, seven, eight percent, what option do they have? People think that the Fed cares about the stock market. The yeah. Fed cares about the financial system. Um, yeah. If the stocks plunge like they, they did in the early 2000s, they don't care. They care about the contagion. They care yeah. about financial conditions going out. They care about high yield spreads blowing out and then that moving more towards investment grade stocks. And so there are different financial condition indices. Most of them overweight the VIX, which is not a good idea because th that's not what the Fed cares about. The Chicago Fed financial, uh, financial conditions index is less biased toward that, looks more at other financial conditions. That's the sort of thing you want to watch or look at uh, investment grade spreads like the, and sorry for being technical here, but looking for the premium that their debt um, is uh, the yields are at versus treasuries, right? Mm. That's the sort of thing. Is that orderly or not orderly? Just like when you listen to Lagarde at the ECB, uh, she's petrified of what happening, potentially happening with Greek debt. Well, it's okay for the for those the borrowing costs to rise disproportionately, but you don't want that to be disorderly. And so that's what to to watch for. And yes, the Fed will make you believe they'll be tough no matter what. Um, the question is how credible that is. And I don't think that's credible yeah. if the wheels start falling off. So they would risk further inflation to bail out the economy if they had to, I guess, if, it, if that's- Well, they have to. Yeah. They have to because you've got nothing left if um, if the system blows up, right? right? right. Um, and so ultimately, they are, they are, they are, their mission in life is to preserve the system above and everything else. Uh, mm -hmm. They're not going to change that. Yeah. So that's- yeah. uh, uh, and and the problem is when you have so much debt in the system, that moment could come sooner than um, than people hope for, mm, right? Mm. Yeah, that but is we also know that they have the tools, right? They could do what the Europeans do, that they raise rates, but they keep QE in place. And you don't know. They don't know what to do with their freaking balance sheet anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and so they, they might try that, right? Yeah. And, and so it depends on the nature of the crisis, whether they'll get away with that. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. Any other flashpoints that you're watching as far as you mentioned a bunch of these indicators here? Um, what are some of your favorites just as far as overall risk in the system? Do you have any? Um, my, te my teenager's mood. That's uh, kind of one of the prime. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's for your individual household. But what about the... Oh, oh I Hopefully thought just that had implications. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a Fed guy in that sense, right? Uh, the 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 reason people say, oh, let's get rid of the Fed and so forth. Oh, that's nice talk. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, although there is a, um, our senior economics advisor is Bill Poole, the former president of the St. Louis Fed, and he's going to present a model in early October. I hope it's going to get some media coverage where he says we can replace what the Fed is doing with a Taylor model that, re that introduces some variables based on inflation expectations. So coming from... I mean, he's not he's long retired, but somebody who is from the system who gives a constructive comment on how to eliminate the Fed. Um, but the short of it is we're not going to get rid of the Fed. Uh, it's not going to happen. And the Fed has the bazooka and uh, it everything turns around that bazooka. And people say, oh, what the Fed, QE hasn't been effective in this and that. 
But it matters. It matters where interest rates are set. It matters whether they form the floor. That drives markets. Now, am I worried and watch certain things um, when, uh, yes, I mean, of course, you, you look the can- at the canneries in the, in the coal mine. And the other thing, of course, we look at fiscal policy, right? Um, something we give too much credit to the Fed. Mm-hmm. It matters how much money is being spent. Um, we get, we'll likely get gridlock, right? That is also um, a, a contraction, right? The, the reason we inflation blew out is because we, we, we sent out stimulus checks that overcompensated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then the Fed's job would have been to, to tighten, and they didn't. Right. And, and so they fueled the flame. So it's and, and there you asked whether whether power is going to be replaced. Well, the, the, the more important thing to watch, I think, is whether Biden supports Powell in his inflation fighting efforts. Reagan supported Volcker and that's why Volcker was able to to achieve it. Uh, what he did. But let Biden be a less effective leader. And I've heard some rumors that some people think that he's not very effective. Um, and and maybe there isn't enough support that allows the Fed to do what the Fed wants to do. So mm-hmm. a tough Fed is only possible with proper political backing. And if you don't have intellectual leadership at the Fed and no proper leadership elsewhere, then chips off the table as to how this is going to play out. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we can't eliminate the Fed, uh, at least not realistically, but is there a way maybe we could kind of limit their powers? Like, if we look back at the last 20 years, these crises, a lot of them have been caused by the Fed keeping interest rate, the Fed overdoing it, whether it be interest rates, usually it's been interest rates too low. If you look at early 2000s, the Greenspan Fed and their their role in the housing bubble, and then, you know, in the more recently, I guess, but so what would you think of some plan where you, you because the Fed is not, doesn't answer to anybody, really, other than, I guess, the president, but about you well, know, putting some limits. Well, Congress can set the rules, but what, you need to go back to basics um, if you can't eliminate them. And uh, for that, though, you need the proper introspection about the things that has, have gone wrong. Right? All the things you mentioned, um, the Fed doesn't acknowledge as being a problem. Mm. Um, if you read Bernanke's book, and I read it, so thank me for it because it's very mm. torturous to read. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, he he wrote most of the book before the inflation surge, and so this entire book that he read is about what we've done to date is the baseline, and let's just think about what else we can do. His nirvana is if the Fed works together with Congress to ensure absolutely maximum employment, and and so like a, a some sort of socialist planned economy, as long as everybody has a job. That, that's kind of the path that I saw in, in Bernanke's dream. I'm not suggesting that Powell subscribe to that, but I think we are naive. It's the same with, I mean, we always, we vote for all politicians because they say less government. Well, yeah, how much less government we, do we have after voting for one of those guys? No. Um, we feel a little better for a few years, but guess what? We haven't gotten rid of any of the regulations we got the previous years. Yeah. So call me a cynic, but I I, I have ideas. Um, setting interest rates with um, with paying interest on reserves has create, created a huge bureaucratic nightmare. Yeah. Uh, but guess what? We're building the bureaucracy to deal with it. Dot Frank has inhibited a lot of business. We're not getting rid of Dot Frank, right? right? I mean, sometimes we get a tweak somewhere. Um, and so we need something more radical. Can it happen? Sure. Do I see um, any political candidate, left or right or anywhere, that, that gets us there? Uh, not really. 
Yeah. I don't know if you saw the last thing, but I don't know if you saw the hearing uh, a couple of years ago over the meme stocks. But if you did, it became painfully clear just how little these men and women in Congress know about financial markets in general. I mean, we're talking like not even like any kind of basic literacy on some of these things. Well, the, the hearings about getting a showtime for your constituents. Yeah. And unfortunately not to further the understanding and well-being and society, democracy, whatever you want to call it. And and so those who've become cynics and count me in that um, shall be excused. Um, I mean, the stunning thing about democracy is we get things done despite all that. Um, and uh, we somehow learn to deal with it. Um, but to, to, to just without ranting too much, the way I look at regulation is that it increases the barrier to entry, meaning it stifles small business, it helps the establishment, it makes society less innovative, and turning to market, it reduces low uh, long-term yields, right? Mm -hmm. The reason yields are negative or were negative, now they're positive in Europe, is because of all the red tape. Right? You have something serious wrong in government when long-term rates are negative. And there are ways to fix it. Right, You fix it by reducing red tape and so forth. Unfortunately, these things only happen at the margin. Um, and fortunately, the, we got enough entrepreneurial spirits that people come through this anyway. And those who have brilliant ideas and happen to be teaming up with the right people get sufficient funding so that they can break through that barrier to entry. Mm. But None of this is helpful if you really want to create employment and, and other things. Uh, but we have to, we can complain. Ultimately, we have to deal with the cuts that we're dealt with. But we, yeah. we, are, we manage a billion. It sounds like a lot of money, but um, we are regulated like much, much larger businesses. It's, yeah. it's absolutely ridiculous the sort of stuff that we need to do. And every few months, the regulators dump a, few, a new set of regulations on us and say, um, and the regulator doesn't care, right? They care about uh, the big boys. Yeah. 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 All very interesting points. Axel Merck, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. In closing, maybe uh, you could just tell our listeners how they can find out more about you, more about the firm, more about your mutual funds. Um, I'll put that all in the show notes as well. So the, the, the best starting point is probably to follow me on Twitter at Axel Merck. Uh, that's the place where you get instantaneous reaction and opinions, all my wonderful rants and everything. Um, otherwise, our corporate website, MerckInvestments.com, is kind of a portal to get you to our products. Can't discuss our products too much on these podcasts, so you'll have yeah. to find your own way. There's a way to sign up to our newsletter. Do that to stay informed so that uh, you get the, the analysis on tips. If you want to understand tips better, we'll send that out in the near future. Um, and uh, yeah, um, stay in touch, communicate, and then maybe I'll talk back on your program one of these days too. Yeah, I'd love to, to have, have you back. Wonderful. To, to, to have people follow up um, on questions. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. Thank you all for listening. And with that, we look forward to speaking to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time.